Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. You know, the week after Easter, I try to just take a step back and take a deep breath a little bit. And I hope that many of you found, this, found the same, just an opportunity to find some places of quiet, find some ways that God might speak. And God speaks in lots of different ways. Like, I can't help but think this morning that on the second Sunday after Easter, for those of us who just rejoice in rain and the peace that comes with rain, you had a little bit of that. For those of you who are looking for a little more vitamin D, the sun pops out and it's sort of allowing all that rain to sort of be absorbed and soaked up and maybe that is what you need. I talked to a lot of you who said, you know, yeah, I'm starting to put in the garden or the flowers have bloomed. There's just, there's just a lot, a lot of different ways that we hear the voice of God in the small things. And God invites us back to what I always say to myself is my best and most truest self. So I pray that in this past week, and in the weeks that follow, as we go, as we now head headlong into the summer months, that you would find those places where God speaks to you in those quiet tones. One of the ways that God spoke to me in the quiet tones was not so quiet, but I don't get a ton of time for just leisure, and so I spent some time doing just that this week. Maybe you joined me. I spent a lot of downtime on Easter binge-watching The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So for you who are Marvel fans, um, we'll talk about this later. For you who are not, check back in about seven minutes, okay? <laughs> we'll pick this sermon back up at a place where it makes sense to you. But it's obviously a spin-off of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, and I've just really enjoyed the themes that are going on in this show, and so I've been, I've been drawn into it, and certainly there's an interesting timing to it all, that has something to do with my fascination with it. And forgive a preacher for messing up something that you might very well enjoy, but there, there were just some things that emerged out of it that I'm like, oh my gosh, that is a really deeply spiritual idea. Because this whole thing for me asks a really fascinating question. If you remember your Marvel history, yes, Thanos comes, Thanos collects all the Infinity Stones, and then he snaps. You get what they call the blip, and half of the world just turns into dust. Half the world's population is now gone. Later on, Thanos, of course, is defeated. Everyone is returned. After five years, every, everything is back to the way it was, right? A cause for celebration? Yes, of course. And at the same time, not so fast. Bringing half the world's population back after five years is both a cause for riotous celebration and a logistical nightmare. The question that Falcon and Winter Soldier is asking us is, what do you do after the world is set right again? What do you do after the world is set right again? Because setting the world right again is not as easy as it seems. You don't, in real life, you don't get to just roll the credits and just get back to right as if everything, as, as if whatever the thing was never happened. What do you do? How do you come alongside the parent who rediscovers a child they thought they had lost five years ago? Or the child who was orphaned and now five years later has their parents? The thought that really kind of spooked me was, what about the spouse who lost their spouse only to get remarried and now has to have that really awkward conversation when their previous spouse shows up at their door? 
The whole thing, Falcon and Winter Soldier, is a fascinating reminder that when the world is gloriously turned right side up, all is not yet right. There are questions. And the characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are now invited to live into that, and that is a reality that will not come with just another snap of the fingers. It takes time. If Easter is what we say it is, if the cross really is the way of God, and in the rection we see that the cross has destroyed the powers and principalities of this world, then it's going to take some time for you and for me to figure out what resurrection life really means. In some ways, resurrection creates more problems than it solves. What does a cruciform life look like? What does a community shaped by the cross and not by the world's standards of power and violence, how, does, how are we supposed to function? Because, friends, it's way easier to build a community on the backs of the powerful, the savvy, the intelligent, and the virtuous. It's way, way more difficult and more glorious to build a community based in the loveliness of the outcast and the marginalized, those whom the powers and principalities of this world have torn down. And the, the reality is there are no models for this. It's not like we can be like, well, over there is a pretty cool thing. Resurrection life has no model because nobody had ever been resurrected before. And so it requires immense creativity and imagination from those who would walk in this brand new way of being in the world. Because of that, to answer these questions, to figure out what, it lo- what a post-resurrection life looks like in any kind of comprehensive way will probably take us a lifetime. But we can seek out some kind of our best and most faithful answers for this moment. And in this way, we find for ourselves a good guide in the Gospels. The Gospel writers undoubtedly, when they set out to write their stories about Jesus, were making the case for Christ. They said, we have seen this. This is what John writes and what Belinda had read in 1 John. said, we have seen this, we have touched it, we have observed it, and we're here to testify to it. Yes, all of that is true. And they wrote their Gospels to say, here is what we know. But after the resurrection, the narrative takes a bit of a turn. They're no longer making the case for Christ. I mean, goodness gracious, he's resurrected. The case has kind of been made at that point. But what the gospel writers do is they now turn and start making the case for the apostles. And by extension, for the church. The earliest gospel writers aren't quite sure what to do with this. Mark doesn't tell any story past the resurrection. But John, after some time, John does the most thorough job of saying, here's what happened after. And here's how this unfolded in the lives of those who were closest to Jesus. And story after story then is told about restoring the apostles. Restoring their relationship to Christ after their near complete collapse during Holy Week. If Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday are this blip, if you will, this complete destruction of the apostles, post-resurrection is they're being put back together. And we'll read many of these stories in the coming weeks. And so I want to encourage you to keep this framework of a blip in your mind as we read it. The post-resurrection world is a challenging one, but a glorious one. And today is one of my favorites. 
the older I get, the more I fall in love with Doubting Thomas. This is the first story that John tells post-resurrection, which means it carries some weight. It has some gravity to it. There is something really important John wants to tell us today. And of course, we remember, as we heard, the apostles have this wonderful experience of the Lord. Jesus kind of appears in the room. Don't ask me how that happens. Don't ask me how that works with an incarnate God who is body and flesh. I have no idea how all that works. All I know is that Jesus appears in the room. The apostles see the hands. They see the side. And they got to hear Jesus say, peace be with you. Maybe the most beautiful, is that four words? The most beautiful four words that's ever been spoken. And he speaks peace and gives them purpose for the resurrection life that it lies ahead of them. But Thomas gets none of this. Thomas is not there. Why he's not there, we don't know. I think sometimes we assume he just was, he peaced out. I'm not so sure that that's true. I'd say it's equally likely he went to the grocery store as it is that he just didn't believe anymore. All Thomas got is the words of the apostles saying, we saw him. And Thomas, I believe, rightly says, well, if you got it, I want it to. If you got to see it, why can't I see it? You better or more special? No, I want a personal experience of Jesus. Thomas doesn't believe the apostles. He wants to see Jesus for himself. And we're going to criticize him for that. We're going to say, this guy wants to meet Jesus for himself. And we're like, bad Thomas. And this is where, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to talk about what annoys me a little bit sometimes about church life. I pray you all know how much I love church. But I'm coming hard at the church today. Not this church. I'm saying the church. Let me preach a little bit here. For generations, the church has used this moniker of doubting as a pejorative. When it does that... It has used this notion of doubt as, the, as some form of a razor. And it's this very thin dividing line between the faithful who just believe it all and the unfaithful who have doubts. It is the worthy from the unworthy. It is the apostles who got the experience of Jesus, who believed Jesus, versus Thomas, who was doubting. And in doing so, it's as if we believe that faith just kind of emerged whole cloth in a person's life, that when you were baptized or confirmed, all of a sudden, all this wonderful wisdom just kind of dropped into your head, and now we believe it all. But is there a single person today who can say that God just uploaded the faith into their brains? Is there a single one among us who, have, who hasn't wrestled with doubt who hasn't had a question, who at least sat in confirmation class and said, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Is there one of you online right now who can post post in the comments, my faith arrived fully formed and has never changed? If so, and I'm going to speak very plainly, if that is you saying, my faith has never changed, I have never struggled with anything, there's a really good chance you've also never wrestled with your faith the way that it deserves to be wrestled with. Maybe there's never been a blip in your life. You've never had to lean into the faith the way that some people who struggle and suffer have had to do. Who maybe hasn't asked a question that faith really demands. The good news is I don't believe that's true for any of us. I don't believe any of us arrive fully formed. 
Every one of us has doubted. Every one of us has failed and tried to get back up again. Every one of us has questions that we are scared to death right now to say out loud because we're sure somebody's going to judge us as a doubting Thomas. What a pejorative reading of this text suggests is that we're afraid that our doubts make us less worthy and less faithful. And in that way, friends, here's the awful irony of this. In that way, in a resurrection world where the powers and principalities of the world have been defeated, when we believe that doubts eliminate us from faith, we are still playing by the rules of powers and principalities, trying to figure out who's in, who has the right faith, and who's out, who has the wrong faith. To read this story as a pejorative of doubting Thomas is at its core a rejection of the victory of the cross. This story is a story of what resurrection looks like in a person. It is one of the most glorious stories in the entire Gospel of John, which is why he puts it first after the resurrection. You might want to argue with me on this, and if, Kate, come, and if so, come on in. I'd love to chat about it. But I believe there is nothing in this text that suggests that Jesus was disappointed in Thomas. Not one thing. Jesus expects Thomas to grow. Jesus expects Thomas to not stay where he is, but to continue on his journey. So he expects Thomas to change. But there is no point at which Jesus condemns Thomas for the position he's taken. Rather, what we get is this beautiful expression of exactly that, evolving faith. Think about it. Jesus, post-resurrection, is active. He's appearing, he's calling people, he's restoring relationships, he's giving purpose to the apostles, challenging them to a new way of being in this post-blip world. Thomas, without the benefit of any of that, stands firm and says, I ain't moving until I see it for myself. And, in, and here's how we're faithful in our doubt. Thomas has doubt, but he shows up in that doubt. He's not running from it. He's not abandoning everybody. He's like, I'm standing right here and telling you what I don't believe or what I, what I need in order to believe. He shows up in his doubt. He owns it, and he stays there until he gets the answers he's looking for. Jesus honors that. Jesus appears and doesn't go to the faithful he doesn't go over, like he knows Thomas is in the corner, but he's going to talk to the faithful guys first and then come over and tell Thomas what a horrible dude he is. No, he goes right up to Thomas and he goes, hey, look, look at this. Here you go. Put your hand right here. He says, here you go, my friend. And what we get is one of the most heart-wrenching and beautiful and gorgeous exclamations in all the scripture where Thomas breaks down, one might imagine, with tears in his eyes, and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Aside of Peter, probably the single clearest expression of the lordship of God, of Christ, that we get in the New Testament. What if... Our doubts are the exact place Christ is trying to break in in our lives. Remember, the resurrection turns the world upside down. Maybe the doubting and those who are willing to own that doubt and to live in that doubt are in their own way the most faithful or at least the best positioned to grow in their faith. 
And if that's true, maybe it's time for the church who desires to be like Christ to start honoring the doubts of others. So my friends, where are your doubts? Let's not sit and watch this online and be like, well, you know what, I think I'm pretty good. Dig a little deeper. Where are your doubts? What are you wrestling with in your soul? What are you scared to death to say out loud? Because we find ourselves in a moment of resurrection. Sin, death, and hope of new life are exploding all around us. And there are questions abounding in that explosion. Think of it. In the middle of a pandemic, we're asking a question, can a church living in separation actually be closer? Is the world turned so upside down that maybe, just maybe, we've learned something over the last year? Is it possible, friends, that the people we have tagged as the most sinful people ever are actually the children of God, image bearers of God, and to be fully included in the community of faith? Is it possible? Is it possible that giving up our bigotries that we often clothe in virtue, is it possible that in doing so we would actually unleash a new beloved community, the community of faith that the world is screaming for us to be? I wrestle with these questions. These are places of doubt for me. And so my friends, I want you to hear as clearly as I can say it this morning. This place, not just this building, but this community is a home for your doubts. Not a place to leave them at the door. Not a place to sort of pretend that they're not there. This is a place for you to raise those doubts and in doing so, contribute to an evolving faith that we all seek. And Jesus' beatitude, blessed are those who have not yet seen and have come to believe, calls us, not in a condemning way, it calls us forward. You see what Jesus is saying? He's like, the apostles got to see and believed. What the, what the, what the 11 apostles got? Well, 10. What the 10 apostles got, Thomas got. But what Thomas got, we don't get. Ain't nobody, Jesus ain't showed up to me and showed me his hands and his side. I would like that. Jesus, if you're listening, let's have at it. But that hasn't happened. What Jesus is saying, how much more glorious and beautiful it is and powerful is the one who didn't get the benefit of touching and seeing and yet engage their doubts and in doing so experience resurrection and new life. Jesus is not condemning Thomas. He's calling all of us, saying that what you have, the opportunity that you have to engage your doubts is a remarkable place to be. And maybe you're like, yeah, well, that's a nice twist on the text, but that's not, that doesn't actually bear itself out in history. Well, I want to close with this story. I, I don't think I've told this story here yet. If I did, it bears repeating. A funny thing happened along the way, post-apostles. Tradition holds, of course, and we read, you know, we read the rest of the New Testament, we read the book of Acts, you know, we hear what happens to John and Paul, I mean, all of that is part of our history. But tradition holds that the apostles all went their separate ways to unique calls, we have evidence of this of scriptures, and we have evidence of this in the, in the ancient Near East text. We realize the apostles go in their different directions to do the work that Jesus has given them. Tradition further holds that Thomas, after this experience, for whatever reason goes east and landed, so to speak, in India, where he started a community of Jesus followers. Just like Paul, just like John, just like Peter, 
What's interesting, though, every single church that Paul started isn't there anymore. The original churches of Philippi, Colossae, Ephesus, Corinth, they're all gone. I'm sure there are expressions of faith there, but those original churches are gone. The only apostle whose community can trace its roots back to its founder is this little community of faith in India that traces its lineage back to St. Thomas. The doubting one is the one whose church, it's Christ's church, but you understand what I'm saying, is whose community persists for over 2,000 years. It's still there, Western India, check it out. The Spirit honored Thomas. Jesus honored Thomas. And church, let us honor the Thomases among us, not in a pejorative, not as people who have these horrible doubts, but as these people, you and me, who have these places in our soul where life is about to break forth, if we can simply just own it, allow, other, allow one another to have those doubts and to stand there until Jesus shows himself to us. And if we're willing to stand there, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe.